Hello and welcome to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Coming up on today's show, I'm going to be going over some pertinent news uh, and exciting events in the world of exoplanets. Andrew will be chatting with this month's special guest, Dr. Paul Robertson, and Hugh will cover the goings-on in exoplanet news and papers, so stay tuned. But first, let's introduce the Exocast family. My name is Hannah Wakeford and I'm a postdoc at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore and I characterise the atmospheres of transiting exoplanets with the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, my name is Andrew Rushby. I'm a postdoctoral astrobiologist at the University of California, Irvine. And I'm Hugh Osborne. I'm a postdoc in France, in Marseille, where I study uh, Plato and transiting exoplanets. So how's our months been? They've been all right. I think busy. Uh... Like you, Hugh, we're trying to move, so we're selling everything. Yeah. So. I thought you were moving early next year. Oh, uh, the timeline's moved a little bit. Ah. I will still be working at Space Telescope, though. Uh, just. But you're moving to the UK soon? Yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. It's one of the other side of academia, you know, the, the logistics and the diplomacy that is involved in moving countries and the travel. And research positions. Yeah. How long have you been in France, Hugh? I've been here two and a bit years now. Okay, um, that's not that's that's still enough time to accumulate stuff. I've got five years worth of stuff that is just needs to not be there. Just yeah, sure. It's not. It's actually quite nice. I like the kind of the fact that I have to get rid of things now because otherwise I'd hoard. You know, I don't know if you're like me, but I just end up oh, buying oh, things yeah. and and just never getting rid of them. Right. So yeah, and you you're moving soon as well, here, right? Yeah. So I'm moving to Switzerland for two months before I move to the US and move to MIT. So I've actually got to do this process twice in the next three months, which is not going to be too interesting. It's but. the best Christmas present that you could give yourself. <laughs> mm. Well, fortunately, I don't have to move this time. Uh, I have my contract extended, which is the news in my life, which is quite nice. Congratulations. Um, so I had a little time off. New semester started here at UCI, so teaching, teaching coming up. I've got one, one or two lectures for that. Um, new, new project spinning up on everyone's favourite planetary system, TRAPPIST-1. So watch this space. Some <laughs> oh, cool, cool. Cool data coming out there. Uh, and also, I've been watching a little bit of the Rugby World Cup, as I'm a, yes. bit of a, a rugby fan. Well, I think we should move on to the first section. Um, so, Andrew, do you want to introduce your guest? It would be my absolute pleasure, yes. We are uh, joined in the in the studio, uh, and I'm joined in person in my office, uh, by a guest of truly planet-destroying proportions. Um, that's Dr. Paul Robertson. He is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy here at UCI. Um, he got his PhD from the University of Texas at Austin and was a NASA Sagan Fellow at Penn State before joining the faculty here at UCI. Uh, his research is broadly focused on the detection of small, potentially habitable exoplanets around nearby stars. So welcome to the show, Paul. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Your, your new office, I've had to walk about twice as far down the hall to get onto the show. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a nice, nice space. I have a window. Yeah, and, the window's nice. That's a, that's a big deal for people who are in other industries. If you're a postdoc and you get a window, that means you're doing okay. We had a rule when I was a grad student at Texas that grad students were not allowed to have a window because there were so few to go around that, that the thought was if one grad student got one, then the rest would revolt. So. <laughs> yeah, you've got to keep us all oh, wow. happy. Uh, so that's the key. So, I mean, that was a very brief summary of your work, but maybe you could provide a little bit more of, a, of an in-depth insight into your work, maybe what you're focusing on at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's been kind of an adventure from one thing to the next. I, I started as a graduate student uh, working on ways to detect small exoplanets using the radial velocity or the Doppler technique mm -hmm. uh, and was focusing specifically on the M-dwarfs. So I, I think your listeners are familiar with these, these M-dwarfs or red dwarf stars. Uh, and then uh, that sort of led me into my postdoc research where I sort of uh, got to the point where there were not instruments in place to do the research I wanted on these M-dwarf stars. And so I went to Penn State where I got involved in instrumentation, so building spectrographs to do more precise Doppler uh, characterization or, or maybe do Doppler work on stars that hadn't been amenable to that before. Um, and now I, we're in this sort of exciting space where 
the first, so one spectrograph became two, uh, and then uh, the first one has been on Sky and doing science for a little over a year now, and the second one is being loaded onto the truck essentially as we speak to go to the observatory. Awesome. And so, so I'm in a sense sort of transitioning back from what I would say close to full-time instrument development uh, actually to using those instruments and doing science, which is really fun for me because I, I don't really think of myself as a, a dedicated hardware specialist. I'm, sure. I'm somebody who builds what I need to do the science I want, so I'm, I'm really excited to finally be doing that now. Excellent. Yeah, and these are the... Um the Hubble Planet Finder and the Need instrument, right? Right. So, so I, I'll have to. I'm forced to correct you on this. The pronunciation is Nuid. <laughs> Nuid. That's fine. That's yeah. Fine. There was no pronunciation guide, so I'm very right. Pleased yeah. Uh, actually, if you go to the Nuid website, I think we have a recording from a native Pima speaker okay. who will, well, thank will you. tell you. And, and I'm, he would probably say I'm doing it incorrectly as well. So. Uh, yeah, so, so a brief overview, the Habitable Zone Planet Finder, or HPF, is a near-infrared spectrometer on the Hobby Everly Telescope in Texas, and so that's, that's the telescope that I've spent sort of my whole career on to date, uh, and uh, that is designed specifically to do Doppler measurements of M-dwarf stars, so they're, they're so faint and red that most of their light comes out in infrared, so we've built an instrument especially to do that. And then a lot of the R&D on that instrument went into NUID, which uh, that's not infrared, it's optical. And we're really trying to push the boundaries of that uh, and get measurement precision below the sort of previous industry standard of one meter per second. And that's going to allow us, uh, the reason NASA signed the check for it is to characterize a lot of these small transiting planets that TESS is finding right now but we're also going to use it to survey for previously undiscovered small exoplanets. Awesome. I did actually see the sensitivity um, being banded about. It's like 27.5 centimeters. Right. So, so the round number we're throwing out is we're trying to get to 30 centimeters per second out of the box. So, you know, day one when we go on sky. And then, you know, these, these instruments that do Doppler measurements, they're never at full strength on day one. You know, the... Harps, which is for a long time the industry standard, they, they were shaking that thing down for a decade. Uh, and so we, we hope that with, with our own decade plus of, of experience on Sky, maybe we can push that further towards something like the 10 centimeter per second level. But everything has to break right for that to happen. And I mean, when I introduced you there, I did I did tease the fact that you uh, have somewhat of a reputation of a planet destroyer. Now, where does that come from, Paul? Yes, we, we might so, have a little idea on the show. But so the reason that I agreed to come on the show is to try to clear my name a little bit here. Uh, everywhere <laughs> well, I not. go, especially when I do these kinds of public <laughs> events, I, I always get introduced with this planet killer thing. The, the one that really <laughs> stuck, uh, Lee Billings, who has been on your mm -hmm. show, uh, wrote a magazine article and, and used a phrase to describe me, ruthless destroyer of worlds. <laughs> and I didn't think much about it when the, when the magazine came out, but but my friends and colleagues picked up on it and that I have not escaped that name. Uh, and I told Lee, I, I blame him for this. Uh, but yeah, the, the background there is, uh, again, my, my dissertation research was studying these M-dwarf stars uh, and specifically the ways that their sort of unique magnetic activity might confound people searching for planets using Doppler uh, spectroscopy. Um, and and I, I honestly did not set out to do this, but one of the results that came up as I was doing this was I discovered uh, that one of the more famous M-dwarf exoplanets, Gliese 581d, which is the headlines call it the, the first potentially Earth-like planet ever discovered, was not actually an exoplanet. It was a, a stellar activity signal. And so that, that sort of earned me this moniker of planet killer. Uh, and I really, you know, I was horrified when this signal went away in my analysis. I really was. I hated that that planet was not real. Um, but yeah, people, I, people like Hugh. You know, Hugh, you you love the planet killing. I thing. mean, yeah, he's done uh, a couple of segments. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I feel more like a surgeon who's lost patients on the operating table, you know. I don't feel good about this. <laughs> <laughs> He's perhaps more of a sadist then. Well, apparently, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Well, at the end of the day, if we're getting good science and we're, you know, fixing potential errors and systematic errors, then, you know, that's, it has to be better for the community. And this is the argument I always make, is that I never, and I've published several planet, or papers now where planets have been killed, but I have always said I will not publish a paper killing a planet strictly for the purpose of killing a planet. I'll only do it if, if it teaches us something that we can avoid in the future. This is... Here's an example of a magnetic activity phenomenon that we should look out for. Here's an example where that magnetic activity phenomenon coupled with suboptimal observing strategies can lead to a false positive. It's always something where I say, look, here's where we could do better in the future. Uh, and, and that's really, again, me trying to clear my name. I, I, the goal is always to find and characterize new and exciting exoplanets. It's never about killing planets or tearing down other people's work. Well, you've clearly done a lot of soul-searching on this part. I mean, didn't want to, you know, it was just When just people are jives. shouting at you from the sidewalk that you're a planet killer, you know. Really? Like, I'm exaggerating a little okay. bit. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I have, uh, I met uh, an astronomer for the first time uh, whose name I won't repeat on the show. But uh, We love the drama on Exocast. Li- so. Literally, the moment we were introduced, he screamed planet killer at me in front of the whole room. Uh, and and oh, that geez. was I, I, he was trying to be funny, but it, it sure. was um, it was a little difficult, you know. Yeah, I can understand. <laughs> Has the reaction to those papers? So uh, you, there was a couple of uh, planets you killed. Has it changed since the publication and become basically accepted now, or are there still parts of the community which insist that these are still planets? I think there are still holdouts. Okay. Uh, I think. A lot of people have come around, and and I stand behind all of those results. Uh, but there yeah. are people who um, don't agree, and and that's fine. We don't all have to agree in this field, and and I don't think we're ever going to get to the point where every discovery or refutation is agreed upon in all corners of the field. Sure. Okay, so Paul, you mentioned um, M-dwarfs in particular. I guess we could take a step back and look at the theory. Why, why M-dwarfs? I mean, our, our listeners might have a good idea, and I'm a little bit biased. Well, I think there are a few reasons. Uh, I know some of your previous guests have talked about the observational advantages. So the, the radio velocity signal of an Earth in the habitable zone is, is 10 times higher than if you put that same planet around the sun. Uh, the same same idea comes into play. The, the radius of these smallest M-dwarfs are similar to that of Jupiter, so it's very much smaller. And so the relative uh, radius of the planet to the star uh, is, is much larger. And so if you want to do things like study a planet's atmosphere as it transits the star, then that signal is also magnified. So when you start talking about, say, looking for biosignatures in the atmosphere of a planet, then then M dwarfs are particular uh, potentially attractive in that regard. Uh, but I again, sort of taking a step back, I just think these objects are fascinating. You know, they're they're the most common type of star in the galaxy, and as far as we can tell, in the universe. Uh, they live forever, so every M-dwarf that has ever formed is still alive unless it has been consumed by a more massive binary companion. And so when you want to start to talk about, say, science fiction analogs, uh, civilizations that have existed for billions of years potentially, uh, M-dwarfs are potentially the only place to look. Now I know, Andrew, your own research has has rained on this parade a little bit. I, nobody's habitable forever, it sounds like. But it's still, M-dwarfs tend to be the, the better the better cases, even even given those caveats. Right. Um, so so I just think from from a scientific perspective, it's really interesting, independently of the the sort of observational simplifications or advantages. So going back to M-dwarfs, will we always be saddled with this problem of activity, or is there some new fangled futuristic way we can just we can start finding planets at the rotation period? Or is there always going to be this, this zone where we won't find planets because of the activity of the star? I think what we're learning is you're always going to be able to mitigate 
the stellar activity with proper diagnostics and analysis. Uh, but it's always going to be more difficult in uh, period ranges that coincide with time scales of activity on the star. And, and there, there's been research that shows this. You, you lose some uh, detection efficiency near, say, the stellar rotation period. And so does that mean it's going to be impossible to find planets at that period? No, but it will probably take a lot more data and a lot more sophisticated analysis. And, and one, I think, advantage of, you know, we talk about how this field has exploded. There are so many smart people working on this problem now from computer scientists to statisticians to stellar and, and heliophysicists. I think we really have the cream of the crop working on this now, and so it's always going to get better. But the problem will never go away. Sure. Are there any um, any planets you're working on killing? <laughs> well, again, I never work on killing a planet. No, okay, yeah, sorry, uh, and, I'm, I'm bad at that. Yeah, now that we have these two new instruments, HPF and NUID online, I'm, I'm working really hard to get into positive digits again. <laughs> so do, do you have an expected uh, expected yield for those, like a sensitivity-based yield? Or? Well, yeah, so in terms of how many planets will we find, it really comes down to how much telescope time are you willing to give us. It, these things, uh, we call it root-end statistics. The more data you acquire, the the more planets you're going to find. And, and we see that, we're seeing that still with HARPS. There are a few stars uh, Tau Ceti is a good example where HARPS has acquired a thousand observations and when you when you have that many observations you can start to deploy some really sophisticated say machine learning techniques really cutting-edge statistical analyses and start to pull signals out of the noise that are really pushing the, the absolute noise floor of the instrument itself would the 11-year uh, solar cycle on our sun also cause some kind of signal? So it would mask something that is on an 11-year orbit, for example. Yeah, it could. So this has been something really interesting studying sun-like stars in particular is it seems like most of them have these decade-plus long magnetic cycles. Uh, and not all of them print through to radial velocity measurements, but a lot of them do. Uh, I think this is maybe less of an issue because it, it, more so than say stellar rotation, it tracks really well with certain measurable effects on the star. For example, emission in the calcium uh, atomic lines uh, traces really well with these magnetic cycles and it tends to correlate very well with the radial velocity measurements that we make. And so that's, I think, one of the simpler problems to just model and remove that effect. But as soon as I say that, we'll end up with some horrible system and somebody will get it wrong, so. <laughs> that's always the way. And for, for these smaller, these M stars that you look at, in terms of the rotation periods, what are we talking about here? What, what kind of order of days, hours, is it, is it likely to fall within what we would classically term the, the zone in which liquid water could exist on Earth if Earth existed around that star? Well, that was, that was how we really got in trouble with Gliese 581d, was that uh, the, the rotation period was about 130 days. Uh, and you can get signals at the rotation period and its harmonics. It's like uh, striking a key on the piano. You hear the fundamental tone and then you also hear the harmonics as that string uh, vibrates. And so when you took a 130-day rotation period and divided that by two to get the first harmonic, that puts you right around the, the habitable zone, the liquid water zone for that star. Um, and so the M-dwarfs in particular have this problem. So their, their rotation periods actually range uh, quite a ways. You can get rotation periods less than a day. Uh, I've been working on one recently that rotates every six hours, uh, but they can also go out to something like 150 days. And so um, within that range is the habitable zone for essentially every M-dwarf star. Um, 
and so you can run into trouble there. It's a little better when you're dealing with sun-like stars. You know, their rotation periods are uh, a couple weeks typically, and the habitable zone, as we know, is somewhere out around a year. And so you can uh, potentially get some savings that way, but then, the again, the radio velocity signal of, of a habitable zone planet is 10 times smaller. So it's a give and take. Okay, I had a couple more questions. Um, maybe this is slightly left field, um, but we've noticed recently that we have a lot of um, listeners who are high school students or undergraduates. So as a relatively you know, early career faculty yourself, do you have any advice for someone coming into exoplanet science like now? Well, it's, it's really different now. You know, when I was first getting into exoplanet science, uh, the number of people who were doing exoplanet research full time probably could have fit into this office with you and I <laughs> with a little bit of room to spare. Um, and, and that so, wasn't even that long ago, right? Yeah, you, you're saying it like um, it was, it was oh, 20 no, years this, ago. Oh, no, this is 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it has really exploded. And so, um, you know, the advice I would have to somebody at the high school level is um, always just sort of follow something you're passionate about because this field has grown, it is, it's competitive, and the only, the only way you're going to be successful is to find something that you're so passionate about. You, you have to find that exoplanet orbiting that M-dwarf that's gonna be the one where we look for life, for example, and, and that's what it is for me. It's gonna be something different for everybody else, and so um, don't, don't do the trendy thing just because that's what everybody's doing. That's, that's a surefire way to, <laughs> to trip yourself up, you know. So Great don't advice. be afraid to zig where everybody else is zagging, I guess is part of my advice there. I don't think I've ever heard that phrase before. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> my sister always put that one, be the Fruit Loop in a bowl of Cheerios. Nice. Well, I guess that's a good way to be the first one eaten, huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on to our next segment, Hannah's been, um, Hannah's been quite excited to, uh, about this one. Uh, we have a whole segment to talk about a very special event. Uh, so I'll leave it up to Hannah to introduce it. Yep, well, it's been that time of year again where everyone sits around nervously waiting, consulting, checking Twitter for updates all the time. And no, I'm not actually talking about the Nobel Prize announcement, uh, although we will chat about that a little bit later. I am talking about the annual Exo Cup. All of those exoplanets coming your way, they're going to be starting entering your Twitter sphere on November 3rd. The competition of all competitions on exoplanets, where 32 worlds will battle it out in a knockout competition to be crowned the greatest exoplanet. Now, previous years, we've seen the Lava World Kepler-10 take the champion spot out of the knocking out 31 worlds to get there. Last year, we had a slightly shorter competition where the ultra, ultra hot Jupiter, Kelt 9b, burnt away 15 other competitors and clinched that winning spot. Uh, this year, we're going back to the 32 exoplanet battle. So they're going to battle against each other and time. All of these poles will be timed to become the ultimate exoplanet. Now, every year that we've run this, so, you know, the last two years, we get a big question. How did we pick those planets? And this year we've come up with a slightly more robust, potentially, way of doing that. Hugh has developed a, a nice way for us to decide. So, Hugh, what, what have you done this year to decide our planets? Yeah, so in order to avoid all of those... Uh, accusations of bias I thought we had to do something quantitative rather than just choosing planets so I um, basically crawled through the list of planets and then for each planet looked at the ADS so the uh, NASA astrophysics data stream and picked out how many times that planet was mentioned in the exoplanet literature in the last 12 months and then the the um, the planets that were mentioned the most go automatically into the exocup so we picked the, the 24 most mentioned planets, um, although we added a couple of caveats in that we only wanted one per system. I think TRAPPIST-1b, 1e and 1f are all mentioned um, you know, in, in, the, in that top 24, but we, we picked the most mentioned one, which happened to be TRAPPIST-1b. Um, and yes, we ended up with these, these 24 um, kind of hottest planets of the year, according to the exoplanet literature, and not us. But that still left us with eight uh, wild cards, which we we thought we we could 
you know, have some liberty over what planets could go in that list. So for those those 24 planets, did you search names individually or were you able to populate like a like send in a database? Where did you get the names? How did you do that search? So I got the exoplanet names from the exoplanet archive. And then there's this Pi ADS, this like um, Python package that just lets you search all the papers. And I use that to to just search literally for the string. So for, you know, Trappist 1B um, and see how many times that appeared in the in the astrophysics papers so and how long did that take i mean i just did a for loop right i just and then went to bed so <laughs> <laughs> i don't know <laughs> a couple of hours but it wasn't it was my computer burning time and not me so nice so let's talk about those wild cards what what was the decision for those last eight wild cards well yeah so i mean we thought there might be planets right that, that would not have made it in automatically maybe because they've just been published or maybe because there's been a cool result recently which which wouldn't have pushed it up the the list so we um so we had a look through what uh interesting planets weren't on that list uh and also we had some suggestions from twitter so i know that um there's quite a few high school students sent in their their um their favorite planets they wanted to have in and we, we had a look at, through that and picked out some of those as well so for all of these planets how have we organized them right so um I'm doing proper like World Cup style seeding. So the most the most mentioned eight planets get their first seed. So they're the, they're going into pots. Each all of the top eight go into a pot, and we'll pick one out for each of those four planet groups, and then it will face off against uh, a planet from the next class. So the next pot down, which was you know the next eight planets that were mentioned, which will also have from the third plot, and also have a wild card. So every single group should have. Um, you know, one from each of these pots and then a, one from the wildcard pot. So that leaves us with four pots with eight planets in them. And then yeah. we're going to sort them out. Uh, we are going to randomly select from each pot one planet, which will then go into the group stage. Now, the group stage for this year's cup is going to be a single pole for each group. And there will be eight groups. And in that single pole, there will be four planets to choose from. Out of those four planets, the top two voted worlds will go through to the next stage where the top voted world will be playing the runner-up of a different group. So it's very much like a World Cup standing. So it's very different this year. And what we're going to do now is we are going to randomly select those planets and put them into their groups. So let's see, shall we? Who is in Group A? Ooh. <laughs> oh, oh! So the 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 first the first seed is Beta Pick B. So that's the famous directly imaged planet with a cousin now. Beta Pick C is, is there. In from the second pot is LHS eleven forty B, the transiting M dwarf Earth. From the third pot, this is, this is a this is a difficult group. Is is fifty one Peg B. Oh, oh. and okay. from the wild card pot is Pi Men C C. Oh wow! That's wow. that's a, this that's is a, a tough group. One. This is a tough group. That's that's an interesting group. What what is everybody's thoughts on that, Andrew? Well, fifty one peg uh, immediately has a little bit of an advantage, which I think we'll probably touch on in the news. Um, being the the cheerleader of the Nobel Prize at the moment. Um, so yeah, a, a difficult group, two t terrestrial-like planets running off against two very, um, you know, very popular directly imaged worlds, or um, uh, not directly imaged, well, beta pigs directly imaged, and a very famous yeah, radio velocity that detection. Is... So I don't, I don't hold out much hope for the terrestrial planets in this one. No. All right. So what about Group B? Let's keep going. Group B is fifty-five concrete E, wasp eighteen B. Okay. Wasp nineteen B. Oh, it's got its number neighbour. Ah. And um, an HD two zero seven eight two B from the wildcard pot. That's the highly eccentric world, isn't it? That is. So that's the there's some. -like that planet. is a. Uh, that's going to be an interesting group. I genuinely don't know which direction that's going. They're all, uh, you know, there's some. There's three large giant planets in there. There's one yeah, lava world, and I see fifty five Cancri E probably going through. Right. I think that's, that's Paul's favorite. Right. The heavyweight. Yeah, 55 Cancri E, that's that's the one I want to stump for. There, there's so many cool things about that. 
uh, discovered by my PhD advisor Mike Endel and, and his group uh, but yeah it was it was the first at the time when it was discovered uh, we thought it had a 2.7 day period and it was the first hot Neptune uh, and then you know its period was revised and we found out it was this transiting super earth and uh, that 18 hour period is ridiculous and there's this <laughs> hypothesis it might have a diamond mantle because of the star to ratio so a lot of really neat things about 55 canker E and it, it's something I think we'll continue to to learn more about I mean there aren't there just aren't that many super earths transiting a naked eye star like that and so yeah, yeah that's a that's just a, such a touchstone system and I'd love to see it go all the way this year well, we'll see you stumping on Twitter for that then. Yeah, yeah. I'm not much of a tweeter, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leverage this podcast instead. We have had um, crusty old professors joining Twitter just to uh, just to cheerlead for their favorite planet. I'm not so. sure they'd like that description. <laughs> yeah, I, <know. laughs> I didn't mention any names. <laughs> well, it's not the worst Twitter behavior I've seen recently. Let's put it that way. Uh, there's plenty of crusty young professors as well. <laughs> Hugh, who have we got in Group C? In Group C, we have GJ436B from the Pot 1. Nice. Yep. Kelt9B, the oh, former champion. previous former champion. Um, Wasp103B. Yep. And the wild card is PDS70B. Oh, so PDS70 put up a good fight last year. Uh, yeah. And I'd love to see the the direct imaging, Twitterati come out again to well, fight is, for that that would the be thing, the, great the, the transiting like exoplanet community has so many planets it can like hedge its bets with whereas right. the direct images they really you know they have those one of those one or two key planets and they they vote for them in in number in force oh so. yeah a united front um, that's uh, that, not a bad that present a united front all right <laughs> group d group d or, uh HD two oh nine four five eight B. Yep. Hat P eleven B. Two two big hot Jupiters there. Yep. Kepler ten B, former champion. Twenty seventeen champion. And Barnard Star B. Ah, Barbie. I've been pushing for Barbie. Barnaby. Uh, Barnaby. Barnaby. <laughs> Barnaby. Wow, oh, so we're halfway through. We've got four groups populated now. We've got some some tough competition in there. I, I think what's what's hardest for us to guess is who would come second, because second place is also important here. Second place still goes through. So yeah. who do they go? Who goes through as second place, and who are they fighting? Who came through in first place? So that's really going to be. I think that's going to mess mess up people's predictions a little bit in this. So who have we got in Group E? Okay, Proxima Centauri B. Wasp forty three B, Wasp thirty three B, and everyone's favourite habitable planet K two eighteen B. Okay, that was a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so for the controversy on that particular planet, please see our previous episode. <laughs> indeed, indeed. We will also this year be producing the classic Exo Cup cards for each of these planets. So make sure that you keep an eye out for all of those with all the facts and figures on them, which will show you that K218 is a mini Neptune and in <laughs> no way whatsoever habitable. So, Group F. Um, HD 189733B. Ooh. Trappist 1B. Oh, there it is. Okay. Wasp one two one B. Wasp one two one's quite popular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the pulsar planet PSR B twelve fifty seven plus twelve B. I just call it PSR plus twelve. It's probably yeah, let's not do helpful. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> An interesting group as well. Lots of um, yeah, a diverse a range of planets there. Our only pulsar planet in the group, obviously. Yeah. So that one uh, might be one to rally behind. Yeah, certainly. I think that we've definitely got communities that we've seen in previous years, which are you know, not transiting. Let's not go for the transiting one. Let's see how we can we can look at some different ones. And we don't have a huge number of radial velocity planets and the pulsar planets and the uh, whole host of other things that we've shown in previous years. So I think it's a it's got a chance in there. Just needs just needs the rallying. 
That one almost probably was a Nobel planet, too. Oh, uh, yeah, right? It's at oh least my. in the supplementary discussion. Exactly. Yeah. So hopefully we can get some, drum up some support for those pulsar planets. Yeah. Okay, on to group G. Um, yep. Wasp 12B. Yep. GJ1132B. 51 Eridani B. So that's the directly imaged planet. Against yeah. another directly imaged planet, HR8799B. Oh. oh. Interesting. That, that, that'll be interesting. That might That's going to be interesting. Yeah. I think the, the direct images will have to split their vote to make sure they get one and two. <laughs> I, I think they're going to have a tough tough time yeah. of it with the small planets. Yeah. And, I mean, what's 12 raining rubies and sapphires? I'm sorry. I'm going to be rallying for that one. Yeah, it's, it's difficult not to, not to want to rally behind that. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a tough group. That's, yeah. People are going to have to make decisions about that group. <laughs> And the final group is GJ1214B. That was our runner-up in 2017, wasn't it? That was, yes. yeah. Um, GJ3470B, another M-Dwarf planet. Yep. Uh, Wasp107B, oh, which I, are... I predicted earlier this year would have a good exocup. So, uh, I mean, we'll see. Mm. Um, and LHS3844B, so oh. that's a, a recent wow. test planet. Wow, that is a small planets group. Yeah. So that that group is the the biggest one there is Wasp one hundred and seven, and that's technically classified as a Neptune-sized world. That's a small group of planets. They're all very interesting. They've all got very different types of atmospheres that, or or not, uh, as yeah. the case may be, that have been studied in in as much detail as possible. So that's really fascinating group. That's really that's your group, Hannah. That's that's the group where yeah, I, I pretty group. much could yeah. form like a rally of tweets for each each and every one of those. Uh, we've got lots of nice, fun Hubble data to play with with those and some Spitzer data in as well. So yeah, that's my, uh, that's where the fun starts for me. But I don't know, I honestly don't know which one I'd pick. Probably 3470 in that one. I love a good escaping atmosphere. I love that the star is just, you know, burping on it and causing it to <laughs> lose its shit. But isn't Wasp one oh seven has the exact same thing, right? So Well one oh seven a little bit a little bit less in terms of the evidence that we've got. I mean the Lyman Alpha that we see from the thirty four seventy really shows that the atmosphere is being blown away, whereas the helium that we're seeing shows that there is a large exospheric escape, but it's not anywhere near the rate that we're seeing for thirty four seventy. So they're sure. both really interesting in those regards because I mean that's I, I mean you've got the first detection of helium there as well. Oh, that's a tough group. Mm. I'm going to have to create another Twitter account so I can vote for my second favorite in each of them. Uh, no, that that would be cheating. Let's not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't that on the show. <laughs> I will not do that. Oh, sorry. So, what do we think of the full lineup there, everybody? Yeah, an interesting drawing. I think we're going to get some feedback, uh, probably from the community. Uh, but I think we've touched on uh, a lot of the the benefits and the drawbacks on the way that, that we're doing it uh, this time. We, we're trying to be more quantified or quantified um, and using this random uh, uh, pool generation is, is probably the best way to do it. And I think it's resulted in some really interesting uh, potential matches. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, what? Group A still looks like the group of death, I have to say. 51 peg, beat a pick, Pyman C. Yeah. What is, what is your guess, Hugh? Or what is your bet that can be changed at any time? Uh, yeah, because I mean, three months ago when I said Wasp 107, I assumed some papers would come out that still haven't come out. So I'm going to go for something <laughs> else. I'm going to go for beat a pick. Oh, I think I think really? it could be a direct images year. Interesting. I wouldn't have picked Beta Pick as, as my direct imaging world, though, okay. if I'm honest. you go PS, PDS-70? I'd go PDS-70. Nah, uh, Because wrong. we had PDS-70C as well this year, which is a really nice discovery. Um, we had Beta Pixie. Come on. Well, <laughs> it's not it's not as exciting as having that like fully embedded. I mean, Beta Pick's got that nice massive disc. And it's got quite a few features as well that are, are really exciting. Ugh. I don't think we can forget the uh, the impact of having a kind of a popular planet out there that's grabbed some headlines. 
51 Peg, for example, with the Nobel, K218B with the water vapor issues. So no, K218B won't get through. K218B will not make it through. People won't, won't, they're not I'm standing I'm 51 Peg will do really well. I think 51 Peg will do really well as yeah. well. Uh, but I would like some facts and figures produced to me by people on Twitter to really convince me why I should be voting for that planet. Yeah, more than just the Nobel. More than just the Nobel, please. Uh, well, anything go, but the Nobel yeah, would be charge. great. Uh, convince Hannah. It's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult. It, yeah, these guys know it's super difficult to convince me of anything. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, I would like to see a world that that wins that we've got great atmospheric information for is what I'd like to see because I'm biased in every single way. So as I said at the beginning, the Exo Cup will be starting on Sunday, November 3rd at noon. So 12 p.m. Eastern U.S. time. Each of the polls will run for, I believe, 23 hours. And then an hour later, we will start the next poll at noon. This gives us a chance to populate the uh, the board, the winning sheet, and set up the next tweets. So it gives us a little bit easier time of it. So you only have 23 hours. That's one hour shorter than you normally do to vote for these worlds. Make sure you get your time zones correct. Which time of the day is best for you? And to be rallying your Twitter followers, make sure you've got all of that planned. We have an exciting set of planets that have all been randomly pitted against each other and will battle it out for that crown. So we look forward to seeing you over the next month joining us in that. But on to another bit of news that I think we should talk about before we go to to the standard news of going through the papers and seeing what discoveries and and things have been published. Uh, It's talking about this Nobel Prize, we've mentioned it a couple of times, uh, but if you haven't heard, I don't know where you've been, but the <laughs> Nobel Prize in Physics this year was awarded to exoplanets, partially awarded to exoplanets, it was, a, it was split between cosmology and exoplanets, but the award went to Michelle Mayer and Didier Kelo, who discovered 51 PEG with radial velocities back in 1995. So what what do you what do you guys think about about that? I was quite shocked. I I didn't think it would ever go to exoplanets um just because it was so kind of uh incremental the progress that was being made in the 90s by a lot of people. Not I mean uh I would probably say 51 peg was the biggest step it, that happened between, you know, discovering and monitoring binary stars to the the exoplanet kind of um environment and 4,000 planets we have now that was probably the biggest step but there were still a lot of of steps along the way you know there were there were arguably planets before 51 peg that weren't uh pushed as hard as 51 peg was Dave Latham and the pulsar planets and um I mean the pulsar planets you know the the papers that were published with the pulsar planets very clearly state they have discovered planets you know rocky planets the size of earth and smaller around these pulsars these are bona fide planets that were discovered they, they were you know and that was much earlier that was what yeah. three years before so it's, but the it's, thing is they're not they're not like planet they don't tell you anything about earth that's the i think that's the the, the good thing about um what mayor and Kalos did, what did was they they their technique found a, a planet around a sun-like star yeah. which could be applied to smaller planets the pulsar planets yeah, they're dead stars. They're in a supernova, very different, right? and yeah, it's, it is very difficult to kind of sell that idea as being the same category as these exoplanets. We we see that in the ExoCup as well when we're sharing all this information. It's hard to sell that as the same concept as these these worlds, which are around living stars, essentially. Yeah, but yeah, I think. If it was gonna, if there was gonna be a Nobel Prize for exoplanets, and you had to choose two people, it probably went to the right two. But the shitty thing about the Nobel Prize is that you have to choose two or three people, right? So, um, well, that you don't in economics, they don't. They choose two. It's not a Nobel Prize. In the prize, load of the other Nobels they give out, if they all of the other ones they give out, like they they can pick teams of people, and it's it's interesting. Uh, I. I personally don't agree with the concept of it, but uh, whatever. 
Well, maybe it speaks to a, a model of science that when the Nobel was um, you know, envisaged, it was, it was much more of an individual effort where you could have one person making a significant um, a gain, a significant discovery. Whereas nowadays, it seems much more likely it will be a large team of people doing this over, over decades. Given the size of the experiments, given where we are in, in, you know, in science nowadays, there's not those single person experiments that can result in those huge discoveries in what I don't think. And it's, it's difficult to just recognize two people as, as Hannah has mentioned. And that's something that really needs to change, I think, in terms of recognition for science and, and the, yeah, the power placed behind such recognition for science that is done. Um, I think that if we can get that whole structure to really recognize the collaborative and team effort and, and what Hugh was saying, the fact that there's huge build up to anything that's being discovered, there's a huge amount of things that go on behind the scenes that have happened previously that you, you build on. It's the it's the Newton standing on the shoulders of giants uh, every single time. And I think that that recognition needs to kind of filter down. But I think that I'm really excited that it went to exoplanets. I'm excited that there is like more open and public discussion of exoplanets and recognition that they are, they're this phenomenon. They are a phenomenon that we're, really pushing in science and excited about and, and reaching the frontiers of. So I think that that's really, really great for the field as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if, if, if it's accurate, but maybe a sense of like legitimization of the <laughs> actual impact of these discoveries. We are changing the way that we see ourselves and the universe. That That is worth recognition, I think. <laughs> maybe a little bit hand wavy. <laughs> yeah, if only it could go to a concept. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Radial velocity, Nobel Prize. <laughs> Paul would share some uh, some money for them. <laughs> yeah, how do you, how do you feel about it going to to radial velocities? It's really gratifying, uh, and and we talked about this with our our instrument team the other day. Uh, it adds to the number of Nobel Prize winning uh, features that are in Newt. One of the things we we have a, a calibrator. Uh, it's called a laser frequency comb, where we use lasers to produce a series of, of very stable uh, emission lines that serves as sort of the, the ruler against which we measure the motion of the stellar spectrum. And that technology has also won a Nobel Prize. And so uh, now, now there are at least, uh, at least three Nobel uh, winning things associated with it. So there's the exoplanets, radio velocity, there's a laser frequency comb, and then if you want to just include the transistors that are in the computers, right? <laughs> uh, and so I think it was Sam Halverson commented, he said, well, that just says that if this thing doesn't work, it's our fault. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's been validated three times. Right. Yeah. Standing on the shoulders of Nobels. Right. Right. Well, I think it's time that we hear about the most recent publications that have come out and what's been going on with the exoplanet community. So, Hugh, what have we what have we been learning this month? Well, I thought I'd start with um, with the Habitable Zone Planet Finder, as Paul discussed earlier, because it was involved in some interesting exoplanet work, but not for RVs and not for detection. Because um, earlier this month, it was published the three transits of GJ3470b, and they were looking specifically for atmospheric signals with HPF. Um, so this is a short period transiting Neptune around an M-dwarf, and it's also one of a handful of such um, small Neptune-like planets for which we've already managed to probe its atmosphere. So we have uh, detection of water in the planet and uh, metallicity um, from Benneker et al. earlier this year. Um, but the high-resolution infrared data from HPF enabled them to look at the uh, 1,083 nanometer helium line, which has been previously used to probe helium exospheres around evaporating planets. And you can cast your ears back to uh, Exocast 25 when we spoke to Jess Spake about that. Um, but anyway, it turns out that GJ3470b is indeed losing its helium into space uh, at speeds of around 40 kilometers per second, which is the first time uh, it's been detected at this speed kind of being thrown off a planet as uh, as Hannah mentioned earlier in fact um, and this is the first time that this has been done for either a Neptune mass planet or a planet around an M dwarf um, so that's a pretty cool atmospheric work there um, have I have I accurately described that pool or 
Yeah, I think that's correct. This was something when HPF was in development that we rec- that it was becoming recognized that this particular helium absorption feature would be really powerful for probing, escaping exoplanet atmospheres. Uh, and so while the core of our research with HPF is going to be discovering and, and characterizing exoplanets, uh, this, this particular application is, is another way that HPF can contribute. And, and this result is a shout out to Joe Ninen who led this as the Herculean effort. Um, and yeah, we're excited to, to see it coming out. Yeah. So in another search for atmospheres of small planets this month, Hannah Diamond Lowe et al. went looking for searching, looking at uh, LHS 1140b, trying to search for a transmission spectra. Um, however, such a small planet is unlikely to host a thick atmosphere, and the team unfortunately found no features despite a precision of something like 100 ppm on the radius there. Um, so it looks like either James Webb or the ELTs in 10 years' time um, are needed to find any atmospheric signal on that one. Now let's go to planetary detections. So thanks to Kepler, K2, TESS, uh, we know of hundreds of multi-planet systems, and these are invariably made of small exoplanets, so mini-Neptunes and super-Earths on tight orbits around their star. Close-in giant planets, on the other hand, tend to be alone. Um, we don't find them, except in one case, WASP-47, we don't find them with, with, with other planets around. However, Trevor David and his team have managed to find a multi-planet system unlike any previously detected, which has four tightly packed giant planets between six and ten times the radius of Earth. Um, and in fact, they found these new planets in a K2 light curve where they'd already found one planet, and they missed the others because um, of the fast rotation and activity on the star meant that they, uh, they couldn't see the other planets until they really performed intricate detrending. Um, so how is such a system stable and possible? Well, it's because the star is V1298 Tau, and the Taurus cluster is a young star cluster that's only 25 million years old. So, therefore, these, these, these planets are still inflated from that hot, energetic formation process that happened only geologically recently. Um, by the time they reach Middle Ages, these planets will have shrunk down to become a system of small mini-Neptunes, much like those seen by Kepler and Tess. So it's only that we're, because we're seeing them at this very young age that we see them at these giant inflated radii. Um, so this is a really cool first step that tell us a lot about how that aging process works, basically. And the next step is really to get masses of these planets and just see how inflated they are. Um, so I feel like I should also mention a couple of new freaks in the exoplanet kind of <laughs> database. So NGTS-10b is a transiting giant planet around a small K-dwarf. And this is notable because it orbits its star every 18 hours. So that's the shortest period giant planet yet found. And in fact, it's on such, such a short period orbit that the tidal forces actually on the planet mean that it's it's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from V1298 tau, as, as in it will be destroyed in only about 35 million years rather than being born 25 million years ago. Um, and... The next, the other kind of freak I have to mention in terms of planets is once again a giant planet around a small star, but this time the star is ridiculously tiny. It's GJ3512, and it's only 12% the mass of our sun, and it's actually the smallest star with a reliably detected giant planet. Mm. Um, the planet, which weighs about half the size of Jupiter, was detected with RVs from the Kármán spectrograph, and the weird thing about this is that it it's far larger than should be possible for planets forming by core accretion, which is the standard kind of model of planet formation that, that explains our solar system and all the other exoplanetary solar systems. Um, instead, the, it looks like this planet must have formed by the gravitational instability pathway, which is kind of how stars form, where they collapse due to intrinsic gravitational forces in, in the disk. And this is the first time we've really been able to definitively say that a planetary mass object formed through this pathway. Yeah, it's like a failed binary, essentially. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's super cool. I'm guessing it's not bright enough for us to do follow-up on, though. Uh, no, it should be if it's observed by RVs. The cool thing is that, I mean, well, it really throws a spanner in, in how we define planets because a lot of people have been saying recently we should the best way to define planets is through the you know the planets the things that have core accreted rather than gravitationally formed mm. so this despite being smaller than jupiter 
if you went by that logic, isn't the planet. (laughs) Yeah. So... Yeah, it's the same argument that's, you know, it's the same argument that we have for brown dwarfs, right? How did they form? Does that change what we think about the definition of planets, brown dwarfs and stars? And Yeah, yeah. Um, Also hot off the press this month was a potential detection of a planet by astrometry. So that is to say the motion of the star on the sky caused by the gravitational pull of a planet around it. So despite lots of false starts going all the way back to the 1850s, would you believe it? Um, Astrometry has has not been used yet to find a planet. We've detected a few brown dwarfs and a few low-mass stars, but it's not been definitively used for for this detection yet. But ESA's Gaia's mission is going to change all that. However, it's not expected to change all that for another two years because uh, it won't actually release individual astrometric data points until 2021. So what's special about this star? So it was actually found kind of by by cheating a little bit, by using the um, published Gaia astrometric error and finding excess jitter, which suggests the presence of something moving the star, even if you can't actually look at the individual measurements. And this was modelled alongside RVs of the star to uh, limit the mass of any companion to less than uh, 14 Jupiter masses, so less than that, that threshold that, that we call a planet. And these show that the um, that there must be a planet out there on a, on a 4 to 25 year orbit. And this new candidate, by the way, is in a very well-known system. It's in the Fomalhaut triple system. So this is mm. um, mostly known because it has a bright young star, which might host a directly imaged giant planet, although that, I think, went missing in about the year Indeed. 2008. So we're not really sure what's going on there. Um, but this candidate planet is around the second smallest star, so Fomalhaut B, and it will be confirmed for sure in two years when individual Gaia astrometry is released and we'll, you know, see the orbit there or not. Yeah, it's interesting because the Gaia catalogue release at the moment does not actually consider binaries at all. So it's something that you have to be really careful with the numbers that they produce. But that would be really interesting because when when DR3, data release free from Gaia comes out, that can be quite easily confirmed. Yeah. Or killed. I don't know. It depends on if Paul (laughs) gets his hands on it. (laughs) I, I'm going to stay far away from killing planets <laughs> astrometrically if I can. Fair Only enough. <laughs> there were some radial velocities in there somewhere. <laughs> I was going to give a quick shout out to a couple of papers I was actually involved in. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, so firstly, there was um, a paper published on our radial velocities for a famous K2 multi-planet system, K2-138. So this was a re- is a resonant chain a multi-system of six planets that was actually detected via the Australian outreach show Stargazing Live ah, um, yes. and the Planet Hunters website, which was used. So Theo Lopez here in Marseille was leading that paper and he found planet B to have Earth-like composition, so something like uh, density of five grams per cubic centimetres. Um, but planets C through G all seem to have fluffy gaseous envelopes, so these mini Neptunes. And also announced this month was TUI-813b. So this is the longest period test planet that's been confirmed so far. And once again, this was found by amateurs on Planet Hunters. Uh, planet Hunters test this time, not K2. And it's a Saturn-sized planet which was uh, published by Nora Eisner. And it orbits every 84 days around a relatively bright subgiant star. Um, but it shows that TESS is really pushing to these longer periods as it gets more and more data from the Southern Hemisphere. How many test planets have we had claims of being the longest period planet found with TESS It must be approaching the longest period that TESS could get, and if it's in the continuous viewing zone, right? Well, I mean, yeah, the continuous viewing zone is 350 days, right? So you could effectively have a 349-day planet with two two transits. so. So we've got many more... Longest period planets from test to come. Oh, yes. I have, I have a list of a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and uh, finally, I thought we should cover some solar system news. So keen listeners and space fans will remember the intrigue surrounding the cigar-shaped Oumuamua in 2017. And that rock had an orbital eccentricity of 1.2, meaning it was, wasn't a member of our own solar system, but instead an interstellar interloper th- flying through. Um, and it was given the IAU code name 1 slash I. And apparently interstellar objects are a bit like buses. You wait a lifetime to see one and then two turn up in uh, in immediate fashion. So 2 slash I. Astronomically, anyway. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> two years gap. I think astronomically we're allowed to, That's instant. to, to use that <laughs> That's instant, example. That's instantaneous, right? Yeah. 
Um, so 2i, as it's known, was found by an amateur astronomer called uh, Gennady Borisov in Crimea. Uh, so it's also being called Comet Borisov. Uh, unlike Oumuamua, it, this one has an eccentricity of about 3.5. So it's moving even faster than the previous uh, interstellar asteroid was. And it also looks far more like a comet. So it's got this characteristic halo of coma of gas and dust around it. Um, and unlike Oumuamua, this was also detected before it's going to make its closest approach. And it's going to be a lot brighter than, than the previous interstellar comet. So this is, this is going to allow us to better study it and get potential spectroscopy and more data points about this, this um, object than Oumuamua. And in fact, there was a study already looking at um, spectra of this comet, and uh, Teo Coretta found diatomic carbon and carbon uh, cyanide, sorry, uh, which actually puts it in the Jupiter family comets rather than Oort cloud comets, if it w- was from our own solar system. But of course, who knows what chemistry is going on in the solar system it comes from. Um, and finally, I think I have to mention a paper on Planet Nine this month by Schultz and Unwin, which posited that if it exists, the mysterious long period objects shepherding the orbits of uh, Kuiper Belt objects like Sedna in our outer solar system could, rather than being a planet, actually be a primordial black hole. Oh, um, this. <laughs> it builds on some interesting microlensing work, which shows how there's an unexpectedly large population of super Earth mass objects both in our galaxy and in the galaxy RxJ1131, um, which has been suggested by cosmologists or you know galactic astronomers could be due to small black holes which have hung around effectively since the formation of the universe um and the paper was accompanied by possibly the best figure i've ever seen in an academic paper a large black circle about the size of a grapefruit that has got to be the best figure in the history of planetary science (laughs) literature it's just fantastic So this is the drawback of having a podcast, right? Is that we have to describe this image at least. <laughs> right. I, it's just... It looks like something's out of a children's shape book or something. It's just a big black circle that takes up most of the page. And it's it's a life-size... It's a kind of a waste of ink. It's a huge waste of ink, yeah. <laughs> and so that, that about rules out the... Or that about that finishes out, the yeah, exoclentry yeah, news. Yeah, I think that's correct. That about rules out uh, all of that. <laughs> It's experimentally verifiable, right? It's so just a cosmologist true. wanting to get in on the excellent exoplanet game. Or solar system game. Almost in this game. Solar system game. Getting in on all the games. Why not? Stick a black <laughs> hole there. Yes, that's it for the news this month. Uh, we'll see what happens in the next month. I doubt there'll be anything as large as the Nobel Prize to talk about, but uh, we'll see. I thought you were going to say the Exo Cup just then. <laughs> oh, sorry. At least at the same level. So as we approach the end of the show, we'd like to round it out like we normally do by having our guest uh, adopt a planet and uh, tell us a little bit about why they chose that particular planet uh, and why maybe it's a little bit special to them. So, uh, Paul, which planet did you choose for this month? I chose Kepler-22b, which I was a little surprised was still available. Yeah, so am I. But this one, was, this one was really special to me. So I started as a graduate student just as Kepler was launching. And so uh, part of my work was to participate in the Kepler follow-up observing program. And uh, for those of you who haven't memorized all of the Kepler phone numbers, uh, Kepler-22b was the first small planet Kepler found in the habitable zone of a sun-like star. And it was just good timing. I think the first transit occurred on the third day after Kepler started taking data. Uh, And... It was just so exciting as, as a young person to be involved in the follow-up. I, I'm pretty sure I took the first spectrum uh, for reconnaissance, and it wasn't until we got that spectrum that we were able to say for sure, okay, yes, this is a sun-like star, this is the real deal. And, of course, now if you were to make a list of the top 10 or, or even the top 100 maybe habitable zone planets, I don't think Kepler-22b would would crack that list. It's it's generously a super Earth and, and maybe more like yeah. a small Neptune. Yeah. But we, we kind of recognized at the time that this was the tip of the iceberg. This was the first uh, the first object to start to fulfill the promise of Kepler, which was that we would find increasingly more Earth-like planets and, and really blow the doors off of the discovery and characterization of small and potentially Earth-like planets. 
And so that was just, that was so exciting, and I always have fond memories of it, and, and so I'm, I'm happy to be able to lay claim to this one before anybody else gets to it. Well, what a fantastic <laughs> choice. It really is. And it's nice to have that personal insight as to the, you know, the discovery process and you know, how it's affected your career, and now we're here still talking about it. And I remember the, you know, the artist's renditions of those planets. I was uh, just starting my master's degree, actually, yeah. and exoplanets were well, becoming uh, evident to me over in the UK as an undergraduate. And yeah, I remember Kepler 22b very clearly. So yeah, very blue. Might not be as popular now. Uh, yeah, a lot of blue on that artist. A lot of blue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah lot, like the were, were they blue? oceans? What were they? Yeah, especially like an ocean-covered planet. Right? I think that was left to your interpretation. It was kind of a blue-green. Uh, I think there might have been some clouds. Yes, there were um, some wispy white clouds. Wispy yeah. There. Um, well, I remember course. it very clearly as well. And when you first started talking, I have to say, I just went not habitable really loudly in my head. Uh, but <laughs> but I love, I love the personal choice. story behind it. I love the personal yeah. story behind all of these different discoveries uh, mm. and all of the different things we're learning because they, they are, they're like, this is what we do. And it's really nice to hear about that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So what makes Adopting a Planet one of my favorite segments? Get that personal insight. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Paul, and also, dear listener. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you, guys. And it's great to have you on. Um, we're going to return next month with more exciting explanatory news and views, and I'm going to be joined by a special guest. Um, until then, you can check out all the previous shows on our website, on iTunes, and actually now on Spotify, which is a little, little boost for Exocast this month. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. But until next time, goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. I have exoplanets. Great thing about having a podcast as well, you can just yeah. stop and start again. <clears throat>